Eavesdrop on Experts, a podcast about stories of inspiration and insights. It's where expert types obsess, confess and profess. I'm Chris Hatzis. Let's eavesdrop on experts changing the world. One lecture, one experiment, one interview at a time. Dr. Ashley Hood, lecturer at the School of Earth Sciences, University of Melbourne, is a geoscientist and reef hunter searching the globe for ancient reefs, which she believes host our ancient life forms and information about animal evolution. No longer in the oceans, these 500 million year old reefs are preserved high in mountains across Canada, Namibia and Australia. The L'Oreal UNESCO For Women in Science program recognises the achievements of exceptional female scientists at different stages of their careers and awards them with fellowships to help further their research. In 2019, four Australian fellows were recognised at the annual awards ceremony and Dr Ashley Hood from the University of Melbourne was one of the recipients, recognised for her research in finding the earliest life forms in the Great Barrier Reef. She sat down to chat about her work with Dr Andy Horvath. Are there still unanswered questions in Earth's evolution? Basically, we don't really have much of an understanding of how um, life evolved on Earth from its origins all the way through to how did we get here, um, particularly in the early part of Earth's history. And we also don't really know how that evolution of life is linked to environmental conditions on Earth. So things like climate change and oxygenation, big changes in the Earth atmosphere system. Now, you said you're a geologist. You're interested in sedimentary sort of layers. So sedimentologist is someone who studies the composition of sediments and how they interact. Um, so they, they form, I guess, ancient environments. And so I'm interested in particularly in reefs. So I look at, I go into remote places in, in the world and I map out where these reefs are. So today, of course, they form the layers of the mountain ranges. These are not reefs that are any longer in the water, like the Great Barrier Reef. Um, but we can walk along these ancient layers and we can figure out by looking at the details in the rocks exactly what sort of environment we're in. So was it a beach? Was it deep water? Um, was it in the area of the reef where today you would get all the corals, where the nice snorkeling is? And we can figure this out by looking at the rocks in detail. What's in these layers that attracts you? I'm particularly interested in rocks that are made of carbonate, um, so limestones, for example. And these are really exciting to me because they preserve exactly how organisms lived um, at the time that they were growing. So for me, this is hundreds of millions of years ago. What sort of organisms are we talking about? I guess there's a range of different organisms that um, have evolved through time. And in the particular time that I work on, we don't really know exactly what's going on. This is a period in Earth's history where we have a kind of a gap in evolution. So we see um, initially the evolution of a very simple life, so things like bacteria. Um, and then at some point we get animals evolving, so more complex life, um, more complex celled organisms. And the time that I look at in particular is right in between this transition. Um, where we don't really know exactly what these organisms are. Um, <laughs> are they really peculiar? Can you describe some for us? So, for example, yeah, they are pretty weird and, um, and it's an ongoing mystery. So the ones that we've been looking at in Australia are from the Flinders Ranges reefs and these are about 650 million years old and they live right down in the deep part of the reef. So these are not living like corals would live today right in the top. They're way down the bottom. They're maybe 200 to 800 metres depth. So living in the dark... They look like little blobs. So they look like what you'd imagine um, a very primitive kind of sponge to look like. Um, but 
they're not quite as, as complicated as a sponge. So we're talking about very, very simple organisms. Um, but they're big. They're centimetres across. And they make up these big cliffs which develop in the reef. So imagine you, you snorkel off the edge of a reef and you just look down and there's 800 metres of these strange um, blobby kind of things right. living in the reef. Sort of minions of SpongeBob. Yeah, that's right. Yep. And yep. what role do they service in the ecosystem? So these are the organisms which build the reef framework. So they're kind of taking the position in the ecosystem of of what corals and what um, sponges would do today in the reefs. So they're making these massive biological structures. Um, how they feed and how they interact with the water, we don't exactly know. We think that they might do some sort of primitive um, metabolism, so they might just assimilate carbon from the water um, because they're living in the dark, so they're not photosynthesis synthesizing. They're living in probably very low oxygen conditions, um, but they we think that this ocean water had a lot of dissolved carbon in it. Do you see this all around the world? In other words, where have you toured the planet to see these SpongeBob minions? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so I've been really lucky in my job that I've been able to travel a lot. So in my PhD, I worked mainly in the Flinders Ranges, but also um, in Namibia, in northern Namibia in Africa, which was super exciting. We got surrounded by elephants one night uh, when we were camping. Uh, and then more recently, I've been up to northern Canada, um, where we got chased by bears. So very exciting things. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us more about the elephants and bears. <laughs> what did you do? I mean, <laughs> so it was terrifying. So we were just camping out in this river valley, and we, which was uh, admittedly a foolish thing to do because that's where the elephants travel at night time. And this herd of elephants, we'd gone to bed in our tents. Herd of elephants came through, and when I heard it, I didn't know what was going on because all you can here is them breaking branches off the trees as they're eating. And so there's maybe like 20 elephants all smashing down the forest and they can't hear them walking because they don't make any sound when they walk. And all you can hear as well is the growling of their stomachs like digesting these trees. And so I thought they were lions. In my kind of half-awake state, I thought they were lions. And I, I got up and the only weapon I had in my tent was my boot. So I sat up in my tent with my boot for about an hour. Uh, and then eventually I kind of drifted back to sleep as they moved on. But when we woke up in the morning, there were elephant prints all over the campsite, everywhere. Right. Right. Not sure how you would have gone as boot versus elephant. <laughs> Certainly not, sure not very well. Who would have come out <laughs> better in that one? I think we can all guess. And what about the bears? How did, how did the bears attract your tent site? Did you leave food out somewhere? Yeah, so we so you get dropped in. Well, we, we didn't leave it out, but, you know, it has to be somewhere, and we kept it in buckets in a tent. Um, and we in these mountains, they just drop you off in helicopter, so you have to have everything with you. And so we had, all, we had our food tent, which was separate, of course, from the tents we were sleeping in. But one day when we were walking back from the field, we saw a little grizzly bear on the side of the hill. It looked little. It probably wasn't that little. Um, and the Canadian guys that we were with said, you know what, don't worry about it. It's fine. It's just a bear. Uh, and us Australians were, of course, rightly nervous. Um, and then the next morning, we were just heading out for the day, just having our breakfast and heading out. And just maybe a couple hundred metres away, just on this little tiny rock, someone said, oh, is that a boulder there? Is that... Is that a bear? And when we said that, two bears stood up. So it was a mother and her cub, grizzly bears. And it felt honestly like we were in a nature documentary. There were, um, they were just watching us. And so 
they wouldn't leave. We tried to scare them off with um, kind of bear bangers and stuff like that, but they vaguely walked away. And, and so we ended up having to leave because we only had one gun. Of course, you don't want to shoot a bear. Um, and they were just going to come to our camp if we left the camp for the day and ruined the, the food and everything. So so you just all quietly went your own way. Yeah, so we called the helicopter and we're like, please help us. Right. <laughs> Get us out of here. Yeah. <laughs> Dr Ashley Hood, surely you get the philosophical question of why do we need to know the information about the gaps in the evolutionary puzzle that led to amazing life on Earth? I think this work actually addresses one of the most fundamental questions in science, and that's how did we get here? And this is, of course, a very big question, um, and part of it is more philosophy rather than science. But I think addressing the question of our history, of our human history, and how we evolved from all different organisms all the way back through time, um, it's really important that we know this if we're kind of going to know what we're going in the future. So it's like looking at human history. You want to have an understanding of history to, to know how you can apply those lessons in the future. But I still can't quite connect it. Um, I mean, we're talking from simple-celled organisms that become sponges. We're kind of beyond that now. <laughs> <laughs> hopefully. Hopefully we're slightly beyond that. Um, I guess it's kind of, part of it is just pure science. Part of it is for the sake of advancing knowledge. And the other part of it is we can use the geological record um, in events like this evolution and events like environmental change to tell us about what's going to happen in the future. So, for example, these reefs formed during a time called Snowball Earth, which is when the Earth froze over um, almost completely twice. And this is our most severe climate change in Earth's history. And so right in the middle of this big ice age, we see these huge tropical reefs grow. Um, And so we know that, for example that animals potentially survived this climate change. And so we can use examples like this from our history to learn about potentially how we're going to go with climate change in the future. What surprised you in your industry so far? I guess there's been a huge amount of different uh, ways that people can tackle these problems. And I've been really surprised by how many different people are working on these kind of things. So I'm coming at it from a geological perspective. I'm looking at the sediments, but there's people working on the biology of it. So how how did the molecular clocks um, evolve? And there's people working on it from a physical perspective. You know, how far was the moon away? Did it change the tides? Did it? How different was the world back then? And I think it's only when everyone works together that we can really build up this kind of really great picture of what this really bizarre ancient earth looked like. One of the things that often boggles our minds is that we're talking a billion or 500 billion years ago. I mean, give or take a few (laughs) billion. How is it that we understand that time is so deep. That's right. And this is something that I think geologists take for granted a lot of times that um, we talk in millions or billions of years, whereas the rest of the world works in in years. And so I'm working on a period of time about a a billion years ago to about half a 500 million years ago, sorry. But Earth's history spans back to about 4.5 billion. And we really have a very limited record of what happened on Earth during these times. So we only get these tiny little slivers of rock that record one snapshot of, of time. And so the further you go back in time, the more fragmented things get. And having the perspective of having looked at the entire record is really the only way that you can put you know, yourself into the position of, of thinking about time in the grandest sense. As a geologist, do you have a favourite element on the periodic table? <laughs> <laughs> um, 
I have to say, I probably do. I think magnesium is probably my favourite. Oh, explain why. <laughs> so most of the work that I've been doing um, looking at these limestones is actually made up of a mineral that's slightly different. So it's called dolomite. And the difference between dolomite and limestone is that dolomite incorporates magnesium. And so a lot of the work that I've been doing has been trying to figure out the magnesium cycle in the past. So, of course, today we use magnesium for a whole bunch of different applications for fertilizers and stuff like that. But we think in the past that the oceans had a huge amount more magnesium in them um, than they do today as part of this changing chemistry through Earth's history. There you have it, magnesium. (laughs) I'll never look at it the same again as I take it for a muscle relaxant. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Now, does the information that you gather along with your colleagues actually help us perhaps think about the possibility of life on Earth elsewhere? I was working in the US on a NASA fellowship, which was um, part of the astrobiology team. And the goal of, of our research was to look at Earth's history and how we would see Earth as if it were a planet elsewhere. So we looked at different parts of Earth's history and we tried to calculate what the atmospheric composition would be and what was living on Earth at that time. And the idea is that our next step in technology with this astrobiology research is to have an instrument that can measure the atmospheres of exoplanets elsewhere. But the problem is we don't know on our own planet at which point in our evolution would we be able to detect that life was on our planet. So would we be able to detect um, very simple life like bacteria? Or is it only when trees and forests evolve that we would be able to see this signature? So there's plenty of applications for understanding our own history to apply it to the universe. So in a few centuries' time, some cosmonaut or astronaut will be looking at your research going, oh, yes, look, at that. we can see that happening on this alien planet. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> that would be lovely. Now, tell us about the L'Oreal UNESCO for Women in Science Award. You were awarded that in 2019. So I was really lucky to be, to be chosen for that award, and it's really helped me um, get my science out there. The goal of the award is to promote generally promote women in science and make women more visible in science, um, not only within their own community, but also to the general public. And so for me, this L'Oreal UNESCO uh, for Women in Science Award has allowed me to to get out there and and do things like this program, talking about my work, whereas previously I was kind of a typical scientist and would only, um, you know, publish in journals and kind of talk in my own setting. And so for me, it's been really valuable to get my science out there. And I think broadly, this award really helps just women be more visible in science and that's what we want going into the future. I have to comment on the bag you've brought into the studio. One of my favourite animals, because I used to like to have a favourite animal, yep. you know, every year, um, is the blue-footed booby, which lives on the Galapagos Islands. And you've got a bag with a cartoon of them on. How come you've got a Galapagos bag with my, one of my favourite animals. It was actually one of my favourite animals too and it's my favourite bag. Um, <laughs> We're instant friends. That's right. <laughs> um, yeah, so I was lucky enough to travel to the Galapagos um, a couple of years ago with a group of friends and we just got to go on a boat and travel around the islands and look at all the different life forms that exist on these islands, so the birds, the iguanas, all sorts of things. Um, for me, it was really exciting from a scientific background because this is where Darwin you know, developed the origin of species and this kind of stuff. But even more so, it was just an absolutely beautiful place to go. And is it true that the animals aren't frightened of you? That's right. Yep. You can just walk around and they're not fussed at all. Um, you almost have to be careful where you're stepping, actually, because there'll just be a giant um, albatross or something in the way. Really? <laughs> Well, I must admit the blue-footed boobies have nice shoes. (laughs) (laughs) Certainly do. Ashley, you're really passionate about what you do. 
who got you started in this field? Where did this passion for geology and finding clues to unusual problems come from? I guess this came from several different points. So when I was just a kid, my grandpa actually used to take me um, on walks and I used to find rocks and put them in people's letterboxes. So that was kind of the start of my love affair with geology. Why did you put them in letterboxes? I actually honestly have no idea, but apparently I used to love doing it, finding shiny things and and giving them also to other people down the street. Fair enough. Do you still do that? Like do you post rock samples? I still post rock samples. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Not randomly, but for professional purposes. That's right. Mainly. Okay. Um, So that was kind of the start point. I've always been really interested in the natural world. So my parents used to take me camping a lot. We went rock climbing and we were always kind of outdoors. And then I was one of the weird people, I guess, that always wanted to do geology. Um, Often people get sucked into geology because they like the fieldwork or they think it's fun. I always knew what I wanted to do. Um, what field I wanted to be in, but I didn't know which aspect of geology I was most interested in. But when I did my honours year, um, was with one of the professors here, Malcolm Wallace. He showed me these reefs that he'd found in the Flinders Ranges, and I got really, really excited about them. And so that's where that my PhD and the whole rest of my research has stemmed from. What do we know about these reefs that we didn't know before? So before, um, no one knew that they were even there. They thought that maybe there was just some limestones made of stromatolites, which are the most common life forms back in the day. Um, But when Malcolm and his students found these reefs, initially in the first time, they discovered that these are massive reef complexes. These are bigger than the Great Barrier Reef. These are 20 kilometres long. Um, the, The margin is a kilometre high. They are made up of really, really unusual frameworks. We don't know what the creatures are that live in there, but we think they might be a link between two different worlds, the world of of simple life and the world that we live in today. Um, And so I think we know a lot more now about the environment and about the organisms themselves. So they are the clues to the past. They are the clues of the combination of life, organic molecules interacting with each other, cells interacting with each other, and, of course, the climate. That's right, exactly. That's life itself. Yeah, that's right. It's super exciting. Dr Ashley, would you have the opportunity here to take the soapbox and profess to the public about what you'd like them to think about? Next time they see sedimentary layers, what is it that you'd like them to remember? I'd like everyone to think about the rock record um, as from a, the standpoint of a detective. So I'd like next time everyone goes out and sees some rocks in the field to think, gee, I wonder how they got there. I wonder what ancient history that these rocks are telling us. Um, I think once people start thinking more about um, just kind of general excitement about where we came from, about how the earth has changed, um, it's really going to help with putting our minds in perspective for how we're going to keep our planet in future. Dr Ashley Hood, thank you. Thanks very much. Thank you to Dr Ashley Hood, geoscientist, reef hunter and lecturer at the School of Earth Sciences, University of Melbourne. And thanks to our reporter, Dr Andy Horvath. Eavesdrop on Experts, Stories of Inspiration and Insights was made possible by the University of Melbourne. This episode was recorded on December 4, 2019. You'll find a full transcript on the Pursuit website. Audio engineering by me, Chris Hatzis. Co-production, Sylvie Van Wall and Dr Andy Horvath. Eavesdrop on Experts is licensed under Creative Commons Copyright 2020, the University of Melbourne. If you enjoyed this episode, review us on Apple Podcasts and check out the rest of the Eavesdrop episodes in our archive. I'm Chris Hatzis, producer and editor. Join us again next time for another Eavesdrop on Experts.